You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Magdal, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at Locked On WBB. You can, of course, follow us at Summit Hoops, two T's, and make sure you download our app, a Women's Hoops app, either on Android or iOS to have 24-7 coverage of women's basketball. If something happens, we'll be making sure that we cover it, and you'll be making sure to hear about it. And somebody who's responsible for a lot of that news is Amber Cox of the Connecticut Sun, who joins us. Amber, thank you so much for taking the time. It's almost hard to know where to begin. We have so much to talk about. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan. I appreciate that. The the place I'd love to start is what your intro was to the WNBA. What first got you uh, connected to the league and what were your initial impressions? Because, you know, you've really written a lot of the story of this league going back uh, quite a few years in the league now. Well, you know, like a lot of uh, women my age, I was fortunate to be, you know, playing basketball at a time when, you know, that great um, 1996 team went through the Olympics and was making its tour around the country and became a big fan at that point. I was so excited, obviously, um, coming out, I was uh, about, I'm not going to give my age up here, coming out of college um, to see the WNBA forming. And I lived in the Midwest at the time, so didn't have access to a team to watch, but certainly tuned in, followed the league. Uh, but didn't really understand necessarily the impact that it was making in those markets uh, hmm. until I had the opportunity to join the Mercury in 2004. But, you know, like like so many of the folks that follow you and so many people out there that are fans of our teams, that's exactly what I was. I was a fan of women's basketball, followed it at every level. So it was great to just, you know, see – uh, women have the ability to earn a living playing basketball uh, in our country after so many years. So uh, the Phoenix Mercury have been a really powerful force in this league. You were able to not only be part of the business side, but part of the basketball side as well. And I'm wondering how you feel like those two integrated and how much of the struggle uh, to build women's basketball still comes down to almost building on parallel tracks. Yeah, you know, I you have to give a lot of credit um, to the Mercury long before I got there. I think those pioneers in Phoenix with Cheryl Miller and Michelle Timms and Grandmama and, and Bridget Pettis, you know, they just did everything that was asked of them at a time when the league, um, you know, was building and they had so much momentum, you know, there are legends about Michelle Timms and I'm sure all of those original folks did it, but would sit for hours and sign every single autograph. Hmm. And you're talking about a time when, you know, at the time it was called U S airways center. Actually it was America West arena, um, would have 17,000 people for every single home game. So, you know, they really put in the work to create that connection with the fan base. And so by the time I got there in 2004, you had a pretty uh, loyal following of fans. And certainly, you know, they had gone through the dips of sort of winning and losing, but had a consistent uh, base of fans built up and season ticket holders. So um, it was sort of like chapter two, if you will, of the Mercury when I arrived, but right. chapter one certainly laid a very strong foundation. And 
you know, certainly drafting Diana Taurasi in 2004 was a game changer for that franchise on the court. Uh, but I really believe um, a big part of the success that is still being sustained there was the hiring of Jay Perry, who's now the COO of the WNBA, mm-hmm. um, as the COO of the Mercury. Uh, she came from a non-traditional background, wasn't from sports, came from the business side and uh, really changed um, a lot of what was happening from a business structure on the Mercury side in terms of you know, just really turning it into a business and the right. way it was operated and making sure that we were managing expenses and we were doing the right things to grow our fan base and prospect and, you know, walk people up the ladder, as we like to say, from coming to one game to several to becoming full season ticket holders. So in that sense, I think, you know, that was great timing because you had a great player coming in, but you also had, you know, this great uh, business woman, woman leading the charge uh, for the Mercury on that side of things. And, you know, it took a few years, like Diana got there in 04. It wasn't like they won a championship immediately or even make the playoffs. But during that time, I think Jay was doing all the right things to lay the foundation so when the team was successful uh you know you could really capitalize on that so let's jump off of that a little bit because it's interesting to me and it it sort of dovetails with what i was asking uh, i think as well which is you hear a lot and diana will say this too that she was not fully uh marketed perhaps the wrong word and i think the right word and the word that isn't used a lot by the media is covered in such a way that allowed people to fully appreciate her game, her personality, you know, what she brought to the WNBA over the duration of her career. And so when you raise the point, it's a very good point, which is that she wasn't bouncing around from franchise to franchise. She wasn't in a situation where she was surrounded by people who were not properly marketing the team. She was in a stable franchise. She did very well on the court. It seems like whatever gap that everybody, I think, perceived, I'm curious whether you perceive it as well, uh, I certainly do agree with her about it, has to be on the media side of things when you look at the chasm between what she is for those who know and follow the lead well and her appreciation in the country at large. Yeah, I mean, that's it's an interesting point, and I think it can go in several different directions. And I think one of the things that is truly special about Diana is she's polarizing, right? Like, if you're in Phoenix and you're a Mercury fan, like, you love her, and you think she's never been fouled, and you think every technical that's been called against her is absolutely wrong. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of fans uh, that really can't stand her. Like, you have a strong emotion about Diana, and I think that's something that has created this sort of special bond, whether you love her or hate her, with fans across the league. And I think you see the adoration. You know, there were a lot of years when we were playing Seattle um, in, in the playoffs, and, man, those those storm, storm crazies would just boo her every time she touched the ball. But you see the respect, too. You know, when you're an all-star and you see her being introduced, that they respect what she's brought to the game. So certainly very smart and savvy fans, but you have a strong feeling about her when she's playing against you, just as it, uh, just the same as when she's playing for you. But I also think it just comes with the evolution of our league. You know, being just in our 21st year, uh, I think sometimes we expect the same amount of coverage. Um, 
and we are impatient with that. And I think that's a good thing to be because we should continue to press. We should continue to ask for more. You know, we should continue to try to tell our stories. And I think digital and social media provides us the opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. But we also have to remember that we are only 21 years in. And I say this all the time when I'm talking about ticket sales and fan bases and, you know, Compare us to where the NBA was in year 21. Right. We are far ahead of that. We are far ahead of that in every way, shape, or form in terms of, you know, number of fans coming to our games, in terms of coverage. You know, it's a different time. 100% it's a different time. But I think that comes with the territory because if Diana's in the NBA now, which is in whatever year it's in, hmm. um, a lot further down the road, right. every move would be scrutinized. We would be analyzing every foul. Was it right or wrong? Um, you know, was a technical right or wrong? You know, and I think those are the things that create the media storm around some of the, you know, men's big leagues is, you know, they just talk about it at nauseum. Right. And I think we will get there because it does happen in those what you call sort of tipping point moments. And I thought the article uh, that came out that um, Sue was quoted in was very poignant. I think we all, every league has a tipping point. And, you know, when we hit that tipping point, that's when it will blow up like the, you know, bird and magic was the tipping point for the NBA. Mm -hmm. And until then, I think we'll have these moments in time that are, you know, a J.J. Dunk in the All-Star game is on every, you know, media uh, outlet across the country. Um, a Game 5 uh, winning shot by NECA um, in one of the best final series that our league has seen in, the, in a wonderful 20th season where all the metrics were up. Huge moment that sort of captures everyone's attention for a very short amount of time. I mean, our attention spans are short. So I think it's coming, but I think there's some patience involved in the process as well. And I am impatient, just like you're impatient, just is every women's basketball fan out there. And I think it's that's what helps cre create the um, demand is our impatience because we continue to ask for more. I think you're right. I think there's two sides to it. I think part of it is impatience is going to drive that and there's going to be demand for more but I also happen to believe that more creates more uh, by which I mean that when there is not coverage uh, I think it makes it very difficult you know you talk about these these moments that break out it's because there are these rare moments when the overall sports media coverage allows there to be just enough coverage of women's basketball and it's no different I you know I know you had an experience with the dash as well it's no different uh with women's soccer and right. the you know the the issue being that when Fox Sports treated the 2015 Women's World Cup like a major event and they had plenty various reasons for doing so only some of them had to do with uh respect for women's soccer but listen great that it happened the net result was a huge audience not just for the final but you know you go back and look at the numbers that that world cup put up after like you said there was talk about it all the time there were shows on fox all the time there were soccer players on american idol and on the simpsons and and so it was able to break through into the larger uh the larger zeitgeist and things like brazil versus china in a group game got a million fans 
got yeah. a, a million viewers. I, I mean, you know, dwarfs the WNBA finals last year, not because of a difference in quality or a difference in level of interest, but literally, if people know about it and it is properly marketed, then people show up. And so there's there's no that, that leaves you optimistic because there's no barrier to entry. You know, there's this understanding that the fundamentals work exactly the same way for women's sports the way it does for men's sports. But it does leave you on the other side thinking, well, geez, if every single time there's a shoot around, and Lord knows I've covered my share of them on the NBA side, there are 15 people there mm-hmm. to be able to talk to every single player. And if somebody says something interesting or mildly controversial at a WNBA shoot around, there's a pretty good chance it's not going to break into the larger zeitgeist because maybe there's someone there to talk about it for media and probably not. Is there somebody to take video of it? So it becomes instantly shareable. And those are the types of ways that I worry you could see coverage leading to a lagging behind. I don't really know what you necessarily do about it other than continue to agitate for 1% 1% increases in 100 little ways rather than looking for someone like Diana Taurasi or, or when Brianna Stewart got to the league as someone who's going to flip the switch. I don't know whether you can have that bird magic moment, which I've looked for for years too, without having access to a national media the way, quite frankly, Bird versus Magic did back in 1979. Yeah. And, you know, some of that may have to do with where we are in our evolution of media too hmm. like yeah. would, would that happen can that happen again you know how there was how many stations right, when that right. game was on it, you know, it's like how many people watch the the finale of mash it's the same right. thing it's not apples to apples that's a great right. point so i you know i think what what i am just laser focused on and then i know, i know 11 of my counterparts around the league are focused on is how to how do we show we have to do our part on the business side to make sure that we are continuing to do everything we can to fill our arenas um to do everything we can to um you know make sure we're getting more sponsors involved to make sure that we're doing what we need to do on the digital and social standpoint um, to tell our own stories, because I, I 100% believe that is, has got to be at the top of all of our lists, because we can't rely, you know, to your point, we can't always rely on, um, you know, media to be there. So we have to be prepared to tell our own story, to put our player stories out there. Um, I, I think soccer does an incredible job of this. Um, I think MLS just out of necessity, quite frankly, you know, they've, like like WNBA have kind of grown in the last 20 years and saw that, okay, maybe traditional media isn't always going to be there to cover us, so we're going to tell our own story. So my step into MLS and NWSL certainly gave me that opportunity to see how some of the teams were operating around the league, and I think they do a good job telling their own stories. So that's a priority for me. I think, um, you know, you get in, you know this, you get in, and everybody that listens uh, to this knows how wonderful our players are. Like, once you dig a little bit, you understand how multidimensional they are. And so we're really focused on how do we tell that story. And then, you know, through Facebook and everything you can do to amplify that, um, you know, push it out beyond just the people that are following us. Like, how do we cast a wider net to make sure that's getting in people's funnels? It's interesting because I, there's no shortage of admiration I have for the way in which you've been doing that uh, this year. And, you know, the 
the one that got the biggest attention, of course, was, uh, and with significant results, was the push uh, toward the All-Star game. And the way you saw lots of people embracing that uh, as well. But I can't help but wonder, when you look at how to succeed in that realm, what are your day-by-day goals? You've talked about year over year and, and getting attendance to the point where every game is a sellout. But how do you know whether those things are working on a day-by-day basis? What, what, what are sort of the measuring sticks for you? I mean, it's, it's hard to tell on a day-by-day basis. You know, it's like you're staring at it so closely at times, you, you know, you don't know if it's making that sort of impact. It's sort of the long-term view. And it was kind of like I was talking about Jay with the Mercury. I think, you know, setting up those, those, those prospects and getting people out to the game the first time to make sure that your pool is wide enough so when you do have one of those moments – Hey, the Mercury's finally in the playoffs in 2007. The Mercury's in the semifinals. Hey, they're in the finals. You can bring all those people back, and we're ready to sell you season tickets. You know, we've set ourselves up for success, and I think that's the opportunity, I think, that, you know, we're really focused on here in Connecticut is we know that this team is really exciting. We know it's great basketball. Now, I'm really fortunate to be here because – all of the traditional media exists. You know, we have a ton of local coverage that is tremendous, uh, that does help tell our story. Um, and I know some of the other bigger saturated markets have to work a little harder at that. Um, it's one of the fortunate things about being in Connecticut and working in women's basketball. It's, you know, well covered, well respected. So, you know, I think that's the opportunity right now, knowing that our team knock on wood is playing well and they're exciting. And we have these emerging stars. I've got to get people in the building right now to try it as we're sort of plowing towards the playoffs. And, you know, we hope we have great luck and continue on, but you know, once you get in here, you usually like it and you're ready to commit. And I say it all the time. I believe women's basketball is still very much door to door sales. You you can't get away from that. We can't get away from telling the story of why it's important and make sure you've got the stories that are applicable to the person. Is it the dad and the daughter? Is it the woman that used to play sports? Is it the businesswoman? Is it just the basketball lover? You know, we have to be passionate about it. We have to believe in it. We have to be able to say why you should have, why you should value it, right? Right. Um, So it really is at this point about setting ourselves up for that success and again, like I've walked into a wonderful situation where there's this great fan base already in place that has followed this team since day one. Um, and I think, you know, if we can do all the things that I believe Kurt can lead us to on the court, you know, it's we're going to we're going to have all of that success. But I want to be ready for it. I mean, what's fascinating about the situation is there are some built in, it seems like. Uh, advantages and media is significantly one of them but more more significant perhaps even than that is by virtue of where you are there seems to me an inherent built-in floor but a thing to fight against is a potential uh ceiling uh you know and and the fact that you are within this mohegan sun experience means that there are people who are there there are people who are looking for something to do who you can potentially convert to fans but of course you are not in a metropolitan area in the same way that most of your WNBA counterparts are and so I guess I wonder how you go about 
attacking that challenge, both from the floor and the ceiling perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we realize we are the, you know, we can be Boston's team, if you will. Uh, and we realize that people will have to drive to us. And maybe those people are not the full season ticket holders. But I do believe when you're talking about Providence, Rhode Island, and you're talking about people in Hartford or New Haven that may live a bit further from Mohegan Sun, you may never get them in for a full season ticket. But I may get them in for, you know, five games, six right. games. Well, in the same way that people are used to driving to New England to get to Boston uh, for the Red Sox as well. You drive everywhere in New yeah. England, I've learned in my <laughs> my 10 months. But, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think we just scratched the surface uh, in terms of reaching beyond, you know, the, the core fan base that's that's here. Is it easier because you guys are ahead of schedule on the court? You know, if you talk to Kurt – he spoke about, and he's been consistent about this, 2018 was really what he had in mind. And here you guys are, certainly from, from this view, a legitimate title contender and right there in the running for uh, at least a single buy, if not the double buy, depending on uh, how things fall over the remainder of the season. How has that impacted your ability to sell this year as opposed to as the way you see it in a lot of sports where it's a year on effect and winning one year seems to lead to the following year rather than having an immediate impact uh, on your ability to sell the team. I think we're going to start to see more of the impact now mm-hmm. because, you know, the all-star game definitely was an, I think an eye opener for a lot of people. There's the national exposure and we were just on the road so much at the beginning of the year. Right. So I think people were following along but there's probably a little bit of, you know, the, the good of living in this market is, you know, women's basketball is, you know, leads everything. But the bad of it is, you know, people are used to 35 and 0 also. So I think there's a bit of like, well, I'll see how it goes in the second half of the season. I think we'll start to see the impact as we go into this final, you know, stretch of home games that we've got. I think it's like eight of our final 12 now are at home. Um, and so, you know, we built a lot of momentum uh, in the first half of the season. Again, I think the all-star um, recognition really brought a lot of shine of bright light on what the team has been able to accomplish in the individual honors. So I think we'll start to see the momentum from that as we can keep it rolling in the second half of the season. Specific to the spotlight from all-star weekend, have you had to recalibrate the way you think of John Paul Jones from a marketing perspective. And I, and I ask that because she had a sensational rookie year last year, and I, I expected her to break out in a big way. But conversations I've had around the league, people talk about her now, and rightfully so, as a potential top three, top four, top five building block in the entire league. And that is an order of magnitude beyond being the sixth overall pick in the draft, the way she was, what, what has that meant from a marketing perspective? And was it eye-opening for you, the way she's played so far this year? I mean, we knew going into the season, you know, you kind of think about your, your marketing collateral and who's going to be on it and how you're going to sort of work those things. And for us, it was a very, it was a, it was a, it's a, and remains, I think a very, um, a wide net because you never know on our team who's going to step in night in and night out. Now, right. JJ has certainly emerged, but we 
fully anticipated her maybe not to take the giant leap she's taken, but to take a big step forward. And we knew, especially with the absence of Chennai, that she was going to have to really contribute for us to be have any success at all. So, um, you know, I think it's been wonderful to see. She's such a, you know, humble, humble individual and gives all the credit in the world to her teammates. And I think that mentality has is what has made um, this team so special. And it's really what we've used to market the team. I mean, I, I think Kurt, again, has reiterated it time and time again, but it's truly authentic. They play for one another, and you don't know who's going to sort of be the star each night. I mean, Shakina Strickland, for goodness sake, mm-hmm. I mean, has really stepped into, you know, a starter role and on certain games just, you know, shot us to victory. I mean, it's Step, kind of Seven threes. So, seven seven threes, threes in a single game. It's true. And, and, and of course, by contrast, not someone – who is necessary, let's say, for a victory. Uh, you, you know, she was scoreless in your last game, and you guys managed to uh, defeat Chicago by 21 anyway. So, you, I, I mean, the number of people who can step up obviously is significant. And so when I hear you talk about that, it makes me wonder, because you had a dual role. Uh, obviously, you know this, I'm telling our listeners, but had a dual role for a period of time in Phoenix uh, on the basketball side as well as the business side. And so do you miss that? And what is it like to be close but still a little bit removed from that uh, in your role in Connecticut uh, from the basketball side? Less stressful. (laughs) (laughs) I leave it to Kurt. You know, I think one of the things when I came in and interviewed for this position and I sat down with Kurt, uh, you know, you just know immediately that the the man is just – he's like got such an amazing basketball mind and you know i really i think it's very hard for people the people that do the the basketball in the business i mean hats off to them and i know there are several of them in our league but i think it's very difficult and i it was hard to navigate that it's hard to have focus on one over the other so i was really excited about the opportunity to just come in and do the you know, the business side of, of things and leave the basketball to Kurt. Now, you know, Kurt and I talk basketball all the time, and certainly I have a lot of those relationships. And when he asks, we have a lot of conversations about what's going on on the basketball side. But sure. ultimately, I believe in him. I believe in the decisions that he makes. I support him 100%. And, you know, we're all in it together, but certainly I love letting him lead that charge. I think it's working very well. We work tremendously together. It's not surprising to me. It would it would be shocking to have someone with your background and not have that conversation. So that, <laughs> Sometimes that... I insert my opinions probably when he doesn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> he can just turn around and walk out of my office, though. Fair enough. Well, well let me ask you your opinions about uh, this team on the court because what strikes me and, and the reason why it seems to me that the Sun almost jumped the line, if you think about what – the uh, conventional wisdom expectations were for who was next in this league and, you know, Seattle uh, being considered the next up and coming team, let's say. And now it's very hard not to think of the Sun as the team in place ready uh, to make that next leap. It's happened in part because a whole bunch of players are at, let's say, the far end of what it was reasonable I think to expect of them coming into the season, uh, you know, whether it's Alyssa Thomas, you know, whether it's Jazz, whether it's what John Paul Jones has done. And does that leave the Sun in a position where going into 2018, 
it's more about consolidating when you think about what happens on the court than adding a missing piece, uh, you know, as you get Shanae back. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Kurt, first and foremost, is about culture. And, he, you know, he talks about this all the time. Yeah. And it really does start with him right there. So I think if pieces are going to be added um, to the mix, it's got to be the right fit for our culture. And, you know, Kurt, it starts with Kurt. And then immediately when we hit free agency last year, we were able to sign Jasmine back. We were able to sign Alex Bentley back. You're talking about two veterans that basically said, I don't want to be anywhere else. I want to be with you. I mean, that really sets a tone. It sets a tone with our team. And, you know, Jasmine is absolutely 100% the leader uh, on that court. And I think that just trickles down. And that culture is what has created uh, the opportunity for us to be successful. So I think the addition, the subtraction, whatever, you know, happens, the little tweaks here and there. Um, are all going to be based on maintaining that culture. Like, I don't think that group, as it stands right now, is going to let anyone come in and, you know, mess that up. Because it's very important, and it really starts with Kurt and the message that he sends about that. And, um, you know, it's been really special to watch them come together and believe in one another and play for one another. Um, And, again, it all really does start with Kurt. I, I mean, from afar, it's been fantastic. So I can only imagine watching it day to day. The last point on this is I, there's the truism that's been thrown out there about the sun for the longest time, which is the extent to which the identity and the ultimate success is tied to uh, a very powerful collegiate program in the state. And I, I'm not speaking about Quinnipiac, although there's no slight on Quinnipiac, but um, I do wonder whether you think this group, which is not Husky-based, but like you said, you, you couldn't, if, if you were trying to design a young, exciting, fun team to watch, you couldn't have built one more, uh, more obviously fan-friendly than the one you have in Connecticut now. Do you feel like it, that will help put this idea to bed once and for all, or do you think it shouldn't be put to bed? Do you think that there's something to it? I just don't find it, there's any conflict. It just kind of is what it is. Mm-hmm. I feel very fortunate to be in the same state as Quinnipiac and, <laughs> and, and the Huskies and everything that, you know, Gino has built and that success and that fans come and celebrate these players as they come through with other teams. And, right. yeah, we may in those moments have somebody come back and just see Brianna Stewart but, you know, that's, again, where the opportunity lies and, mm-hmm. and why it's important to have great business practices in place, because chances are they're going to love what they see from us, too. And we are their link to professional basketball in the summer, um, seeing the best players in the world come through here, including the people that they love. So right. I, you can't you can't fight it. It's always going to be here. It's a part of our fabric. And I love it. I'm very grateful for it because we have passionate, loyal um, amazing fans that come out every night, win or lose, and support us. So I do believe that obviously this team is so fun to watch and their personalities are starting to really shine through. And that was our goal with the All-Star campaign was to show a little bit of their personalities and start to create more of that connection because we are a young team more than anything else. Right. Um, and that gets back to the social and digital piece and really you know, sharing that side of them with our fans. But 
you know, I think I think it's happening. We're creating that connection with this group, um, and people are really starting to um, bond with these players off the court as well. It's hard to imagine just to conceive of somebody who loves basketball who comes to watch Brianna Stewart and doesn't fall in love with John Paul Jones's game for so many of the same reasons because of so many things that both of them are able to do on the court. So I agree with you. It doesn't, doesn't make sense as uh, a potential conflict uh, and, and does seem like, like an entry point for you guys. Uh, just strictly speaking on the metrics, but you know, before, before I let you go, you guys are up and, and up fairly significantly already year over year. Do you have in mind when you want to get to that point of every sellout and what is success in the meantime? What are those goals for you like? We need to continue, you know, building that consistent season ticket holder base. I mean, that's at the foundation. Uh, But, you know, again, I think it's just continuing in the meantime, exposing people, uh, making sure that we're creating um, opportunities to prospect those people that may come in for the first time, uh, creating relationships. Again, it's just really good business practices where you may have someone gets a free ticket, they come sit in the seat, no one ever talks to them, we don't know who they are and they leave, and that may be it. Um, we need to make sure when those people come in the door that we have a process to get to know them, understand who they are, understand why they're coming, who they're coming with, so that we can continue a conversation about getting them back and growing them into a bigger fan. You know, again, this is where I think the basketball and the business does align. You're just setting yourself up for when the success really starts coming on the court, all of those people, you know, those people, you can call them, you can bring them back. Um, And then it's that door to door sales. It's making the ask. You're asking them to come on board with you and support the franchise. And then for you, for you personally, is that why you are in part as active on Twitter as you've been? Because it's notable and you've been extremely open about your process. Is it just because you view Twitter as, in essence, the digital version of door to door? Yeah, absolutely. And I think. I think one of the things that I learned when I was in Phoenix and, you know, I, I utilized a lot was just that transparent, using social media to be really transparent with fans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll do it now. I'll jump on a message board with Sun fans and answer questions and people will tag me on various, various things. And I think it's an opportunity when you can't literally go door to door or get on the phone with everyone to answer maybe a question that a lot of people have in a very personal way. Right. Um, so I, you know, I think it's a great tool. Um, sometimes I should get off Twitter, but that's, that's a whole other story. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's a great way to sort of educate people about why we do certain things and the thought process. And um, again, just sort of give people an inside look. Well, it's been fantastic to see, and so I, I feel guilty about sort of putting you on the spot with one final basketball-specific question, but I, I think I need to do that uh, before I let you go, and that is uh, you were part of the team that drafted Brittany Griner. You are now uh, part of a team that employs John Paul Jones one-on-one. Who wins that game? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I can't answer that, you know, because they're both – I they both have such a special place in my heart. I certainly uh, love BG to death and I've loved to see her evolution as a player. And I think, um, how about this? I think B 
BG would probably win in the low block, but I think JJ could probably win the three-point contest. <laughs> fair. That is fair. <laughs> Although I will say, I, I recently interviewed BG, and she talked about how she's been working on shooting the three in practice and is really trying to lobby Sandy to be able to let her start shooting them in games. So we may have to revisit that. I just have to put that out there. She's going to be like those 07-09 Mercury teams with Tangela Smith trailing on the brakes. Yes. And once you get Brittany out there, she never want to, the bigs never want to go back inside once they start <laughs> shooting those three. It is very true. It's, I just I just wrote a piece about this, and it's been fascinating to hear all of the bigs and uh, how much they're enjoying uh, shooting the three. Yeah, Lots great. of fun to watch. Well, It's great to see. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and Amber Cox, such a pleasure to chat with you, just as I hoped it would be, and uh, wishing you continued success and certainly been wonderful to see how much has been going right for you guys over in Connecticut. Well, thank you so much, and we really appreciate all you do for women's basketball and uh, just how much you amplify these stories and, and lift up our game. So thank you so much. An absolute pleasure. And just a reminder to our listeners that you can – Follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB or go ahead at Summit Hoops, two T's in honor of Pat. Make sure you download the app and so you're following what we're doing 24-7. And make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as well so more people hear these stories. I'm Howard Megdahl wishing you a wonderful day.